We've been working our way for about eight weeks through the book of 1 Samuel and we come, this is our last Sunday for a few months. <clears throat> Next term we're going to go on uh, a focus on our theme for this year which is on grace. You would have received in your bulletin this morning I think a blue form. If you'd like to take that out now. There's an indication of our themes for 10 weeks, 20 talks on the five concepts of grace, G-R-A-C-E. Grace, G stands for being genuine, genuine truth tellers, genuine in our relationships. R stands for being receptive, A stands for being active, participants in the community, C is community and E is for encouragement. We're going to spend two Sundays on each one of those and so that'll be morning and evening, morning and evening, the letter G. And then the next two weeks, morning and evening, morning and evening, the letter A and so on. And there is Bible studies material written for that. And so we would encourage you, if you are not in a life group or haven't been in a connect group, we want everybody to be in one or the other. Yes, you can form your own group, just less on that form, just indicate who you would like to be in a group with. Put that in the box this morning and give it to Pastor David and he'll organise all of those things. He's preaching, I think, this morning at the Cantonese service. Um. Okay, so if you'd like to fill that in now, you may. Put your name, commit yourself. We want to encourage everybody to be in a connect group, meeting with somebody, accountability group, small group, ministry group, whatever group, but looking at this material, encouraging each other to be full disciples. So that's next term. So today is the last Sunday we're going to spend on Samuel for quite a while. <clears throat> and it comes to at a good point in the book where Saul is finally in, reinstated or installed as king. Um, and the people in this morning are reorientated towards God, that God is the true king and that Saul operates under his authority. I think the most important verse, it's a great chapter, but the key verse is verse 20, as Janola read it so well to us. Don't be afraid. You have done all this evil. You have. You've done wrong. Yet... Don't turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your hearts. You messed up, but now get yourself back under his forgiveness and under his authority and leadership and stay there. Keep moving forward. That's the gist of what we are about to work through. Before we come to chapter 12, at the end of chapter 11, there are just a short paragraph, verses 12 to 15, if you have a look in your Bible, which talks about after this incredible victory, where God in his graciousness had given Israel a king as they had requested inappropriately, incorrectly, but God had given them what they wanted and hadn't given them, as I said last week, a dud, but gave them someone quite capable. At least at this point in his life, Saul is very capable. And he, with the Spirit of God coming upon him, summons God's people, they rally 300,000 troops, they head off to Jabesh-Gilead, and they are victorious, strongly so. And the people are jubilant. So at that point, then, this paragraph, chapter 11, verse 12, there's a group of people who remember, who realise, and who, in fact, may also have been part of it. They say to Samuel, not to Saul, the king, but to Samuel, where are those people who said that Saul was going to be a no good, a worthless person. He can't be our king. The end of chapter 10. There's a group of people who are quite disgruntled. Disgruntled with God's provision. Disgruntled with their newly appointed leader. And that is a bad thing. That's a wicked attitude to have. 
we don't have time to digress, but if you read Luke 19, you'll find the Lord Jesus teaches exactly the same thing in one of his parables. So these people come to Samuel. Where are those disgruntled mob of people? Bring them out. We want to execute them. It's interesting. Next verse. Saul, in fact, is the one who replies, not Samuel. Saul steps forward, steps in. And he says, there won't be any more killing today. When he says today, does he mean there won't be any more killing? God's done a great victory. Or does he mean there won't be any more killing today? It'll come, but not today. Today is the day for us to worship and honour God. Well, whichever way you read or understand that, Samuel at that point then, seeing Saul's manifestation of grace, because that's what it is, he is the one who has been dishonoured, he is the one who has been belittled, and he is the one who is now protecting them. Not today. Focus on God, he says. He's a believer. Gives glory and honour to God. God has done this. I led the troops, I did all that, but it was God who did that through me. Saul's correct. Um, so Samuel says, it's time for us to go to Gilgal and to renew the kingship. It's an interesting phrase, and that's the title for today's talk, renew the kingship. It's time for us to go to Gilgal and renew the kingship. To renew, not to complete, not to begin, but to renew. Had something happened in Saul's kingship up until this point that it needed to be renewed? Had it deteriorated over time? Had there been a long time or something between the election, selection by amongst all of the tribes and he was the one chosen by Lot? And before this incredible victory, is there a length of time in here where the kingship in Israel deteriorated? And Saul is saying it's time to renew the kingship. I think that's how the people understood it because in verse 15, all of the people go down to Gilgal and there they make Saul king in the presence of the Lord. All of the people. All of the people. Disgruntled ones as well. They get the chance now to reassert or to affirm their allegiance to the king, Saul. I think Samuel means something else. He probably meant, let's make sure we follow what God has told us about kingship. Let's renew that kingship. We're committed to God's kingship, like in Deuteronomy 17. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8 in your Bibles, just flipping back, you'll find when this idea was first proposed that Samuel was displeased with it, that he thought, correctly so, this is an evil request. You're rejecting God as king and you're wanting a human you know, tall, dark and handsome king. And then Samuel instructs them, uh, if you want a king like the kings of the world, this is what the king will be like. And if you read 1 Samuel 8, verses 11 to 18, you'll see that he emphasises like six times, this king will take, he will take your sons, he will take your daughters, he will take your oxen, he'll take your donkeys, he'll take your best servants, he'll take your land, he'll even take... Whatever land you have, he'll take a tithe of the produce of the land for himself. He will take, he will take, he will take. That's what kings do. They take to themselves so they can live in pomp and ceremony, which is why we have kings. So they can go before us into battle, they can lead the way. And then Samuel warns him in chapter 8, you will become like slaves, you'll cry out to God, and God will not hear you. This is an evil request. And God says... Listen to them. 
give them what they want. And so Samuel does. So in chapter 10, where there is the election going on, after Saul is the one who was selected, chapter 10, verse 27, I think, says that Samuel, or verse 25, Samuel wrote down how the kingship should work in Israel. He wrote it down and he presented it before the Lord. Okay, we've got a king. Not a king like the world has a king. We want a king like God says we should have a king. A king who will not take, but a king who will give. A king who will lead. A king who will lead us under God's authority, who will teach us God's word. A king who will obey God. A king who will lead us in God's ways. That's the king we want. And I think that's what's in Samuel's mind when he says, let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingship. His agenda is that he wants Israel to make, to make sure they've got the right attitude or at least to bring them back in repentance under that attitude of submission to God as king. So the people do. They go to Gilgal. They have that ceremony as I had indicated. Um, verse 15, there's a massive celebration. Saul has now been privately anointed by Samuel. Remember the story of the lost donkeys and that, meeting Samuel. He's now been um, publicly selected by the lots and now here chapter 11 he has been officially installed there is no doubt at all that Saul is the king the earthly king and all of the people are involved in it good says Samuel it's now time for that conversation Samuel is a truth teller he's not a false hypocritical you know what a lovely occasion it is that we're all here together extending hands and so on. You've made a terrible, wicked decision and let's talk about it. That's basically what he says. He begins, it's like in a courtroom. He uses language similar to the courts. You'll hear things about evidence and witnesses and words against and accusations and verdicts given. And Saul, Samuel's agenda is that he wants Israel to come to a point of changing their minds, that they will think correctly about God and about their new king, Saul. So he begins with himself, and he's setting them up. So Samuel says to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me, and you have your king. You asked for a king, I listened, didn't agree, I listened, and now you have your king. You also made a comment that my sons were not obedient. Verse 2, now you have your king as your leader. As for me, I am old and grey and my sons are here with you. My sons are here. You can easily miss it. If you go back, I think it's in chapter 8, they make the comment, Samuel, you're old. Thank you very much. Your sons don't follow in your ways. And he had made them judges in Israel. And he had removed them. He had them way down south in Beersheba, sort of like out of harm's way, or for whatever reason they were down there. But the people had complained to him now about his sons. And so reading between the lines in the white bits, he's fired them. They're no longer in Beersheba. They're now here with the people at Gilgal. They have come. And the implication is he has removed them from office because of their complaint, because they did not walk in, your, in the ways of God. 
Well, if that was the case, imagine what sort of man Samuel is. He's a man of integrity. He's a man who will get his house in order. He's a man who was not perfect, but a man who certainly lived his life under the lordship of Yahweh. I think he fired his sons. He just removed them from being judges in Israel. I bet you their wives were upset. His daughters-in-law. I bet you his wife probably wasn't too happy with him. Why not? Well, because they have lost a great source of income. They used to put out their hands for bribes. They were rolling in money. And Samuel cut it off. Why? Because he's a man of integrity. He lives under God's rules. That's wrong. You're fired. And so he challenges the people. He now says to them, I've been uh, your leader from my youth. All of my life, I've endeavoured to lead you in these ways. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and before the king is anointed. Whose ox have I taken? He uses the word taken. Remember what the king will do? He will take, he will take, I'll take. What have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? Whose hand have I taken a bribe from? I know my sons did, but I haven't. So that I close my eyes to overlook an offence. They reply unanimously, affirming his integrity. Verse 4, you have not cheated or oppressed us. You have not taken anything from anyone's hands. You've been upright, you've been godly. And so Samuel says, that's correct. So now the Lord is a witness against you. Out of your own mouth, you have just declared yourself guilty. I don't think they get it. But he's basically saying, because my leadership had integrity and it was godly and I was doing everything right, and as he's going to indicate in just in the next paragraph, everything God had done was obviously right. So if the leadership was right and God was acting right according to his covenant, then where did this question come from to have a king? Your question is inappropriate. It's not based upon any evidence. You have done something very evil. And so now God and the king has heard you say that. And they said, yep, that's correct. He is a witness. So then Samuel rehearses historically God's actions with the people. And he basically brings before them, verse 8 all the way down to 11, 8, 9, 10 and 11. When Jacob went down to Egypt, they cried to the Lord. God sent them a deliverer, Moses and Aaron. He brought your fathers out, brought you into this place. And that pattern has repeated itself over the centuries. They forgot God. He sold them into the hands of invaders, of people who would come and discipline them. Uh, They fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord in repentance. We have sinned, verse 10. We have forsaken the Lord and served these false gods. Now please deliver us and we will serve you. He does. He sends a deliverer. Jeroboam, verse 11, that's Gideon. Barak, Jephthah and Samuel. He delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. That's what God's been doing. Consistently, there is a pattern to your behaviour. If you like, there is a bit of a cycle of sin that happens here for Israel. That they are with God in peace under a godly leader or ruler or judge and then over time they forget God and they make a choice like the world around them. They want to be like everybody else or they take matters into their own hands. They think that God's not going to come through so they've got to do it themselves. And so there is this pattern of choices and a behaviour of with God, departing from God, stumbling, falling, turning away from the ways of God, wandering off. 
you know, that same pattern lives in us because we, like the people of Israel, are tainted with the same problem, sin. What is sin? Sin is basically anything which leads us away from complete obedience to God. I like to think of sin as it's an orientation, it's the default button of our life which is set on self, not set on God. It exists in all of us. Sin has done it to us. We are predisposed towards self quite naturally. When you become a follower of the Lord Jesus, when you repent, when you are born again, changed, he gives you a new heart, but you don't get a new default button. You still have the sinful one. You have now a choice. You now have the ability by his spirit that you can now choose to walk in the ways of righteousness. But during certain times, crisis, situations in our life, when we forget, when we don't consciously, deliberately live under the rule of God, we make selfish choices, sinful choices, things that please us. It can happen during all sorts of circumstances and times in our life. It can happen when we're feeling good. It can happen when we are feeling terrible, when we're feeling bad. All sorts of situations. Life is like a roller coaster. I've often used this illustration at funerals, but for our purposes this morning, the roller coaster ride that we take as believers is that we're in, in God's roller coaster. We're with Him. We have decided to join His carriage. And the roller coaster, like life, with God, will still go up, still go down, still have twists and turns, sudden stops and goes. Uh, life will go on, but we're doing it with God. When you get into a roller coaster, I've only ever been in one in my life, and I only ever want there to be one in my life. I went on the small one that was at uh, Australia Zoo in Sydney, outskirts of Sydney. They used to call it the Little Beastie and the Big Beastie, and I went on the Little Beastie. That was the first mistake. It's much sharper and sudden in its twists and turns and more frightening, in fact, as it turns out. If you go on the big beast, it's a little more gentler and longer and more gracious. Totally aside, nothing to do with what I want to say, but just to inform you anyway, if you get a chance to go on the Story Bridge and the Sydney Harbour Bridge, go on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It's bigger, wider and gentler. It's easier than the Story Bridge, my opinion. Done both. Story Bridge was much more scary. Anyway, back to the roller coaster ride. We're in a roller coaster with God. When you get into the roller coaster, it'll have a little sign there. And the sign will say, please remain seated at all times whilst the carriage is in motion. That's a good idea. Stay in the carriage. Stay seated while it's moving. Now imagine in a real roller coaster, if you got out, what would happen? Well, it would hurt, wouldn't it? It's up in the air, you're going to fall. If you don't kill yourself, you're certainly going to hurt yourself. Well now, so too with God. You're in God's roller coaster and you're going with him. So in all circumstances of life, good times, bad times, twists, turns, stay with God. If you get out, if you depart from God and whatever life circumstances are, it's going to hurt. It's a bad choice to make. Whatever life throws at you, continue to live as God's person under his circumstances. 
Well, Israel had this pattern, uh, this continual repetition of uh, with God, departing from God, falling and stumbling, coming back eventually, and staying there for a while, and then next generation falling away. Uh, you look at your own life and see if there was a similar pattern, a similar tendency to stray. Look back, think back over the last five, ten years. Are there some areas or circumstances of life that continually, consistently knock you out, off track? When that situation happens, I react badly. I have some in my life. And so to be aware of them, to identify them, it then helps you to focus prayerfully and to get some wisdom on what should I do in this situation so that I don't sin. I've told you a thousand times, it's a safe one to use. I could tell you other ones which are more personal and so I'm not. I'll tell you this one because you already know it anyway. One of the things that pushes my buttons, one of the ways where I stumble into sin so easily is when I am driving and the other idiots on the road do something wrong. Not me, them. Now, there is a list of things that annoy me but one of them is if someone, for instance, uh, cuts you off you know, inappropriately. They're just rude. Now, my normal reaction, my forget I'm living under God's rulership of his representative and boom, default to self is what am I going to do about that? Well, I am going to, my reaction is to do something. And I've done different things over the years. And one of them was the most foolish of all, which I think I've told you about and I'm not telling you today. You can come and ask me privately. I was just foolish because I was annoyed and I was so annoyed I didn't know what to do about it. So I started to do something and then when I started I went, well, this is dumb. You ever done something like that? Started and then gone, oh I need to stop this. But it's too late, you've already done it. Half anyway, whatever. Israel had this pattern. Is there a pattern in your life? And if there is, see if you can identify what those are and target them so that you can stay under God's rule, under God's leadership. Um, stay on God's roller coaster ride. Well, Saul has, uh, Samuel has been teaching God's people. God has acted consistently. You've had this pattern. Verse 11, God has sent you a lot of deliverers. He has continued to act graciously towards you. Verse 12. But when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, there we go, were pattern being repeated. Here comes another invasion. Is this from God? Because if it is, that means we've departed from God. And instead of calling out to God like they had before, they had a good leader in Samuel. They have God behaving consistently and faithfully towards them. Uh, They had spiritual amnesia. They had default button to self. Verse 12, what are we going to do? We want a king, even though the Lord was your king, Samuel says. Well, that was a selfish, wrong choice. Now, here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for, verse 13, the one the Lord has given you. Now you have a fork in the road, people. You've asked, you've got. Consequences to your decisions, the king cannot now be removed and will not now be removed, but you have a choice. Verse 14, if you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, both you and the king, that is, then things will go well. 
Do you live under God's rules and his rulership, his lead, lordship and his sovereignty? Then things will go well. Whether life is good, bad, twists, turns, whatever. I'm with God in my life situation. But, the other fork in the road, verse 15, but if you do not obey the Lord, if you rebel against his commands, then you'll experience his hand against you. Discipline, punishment, bad things happening. For God to get your attention, to get you to repent, to come back to him, so you can live the way that he wants you to live. You've had a conversation with people where you're talking to them and you've been logical, rational, you've won the argument, there's no escape and they still aren't convinced. They just don't agree. You ever had conversations like that with anybody? That's a bit like what Samuel's having now with Israel. He's shown them and they have affirmed his uh, faithful leadership. He's demonstrated and they've observed God's faithful keeping of the covenant with them and they still don't get it. They're still not at the point of the repentance. They still don't see that that decision was a bad decision. So Samuel says, we need a visual aid. Verse 16. Now then, Israel, stand still in your positions, gathering your tribes. You're going to see God do something. It's the wheat harvest. The rain season has passed. It's the beginning of the dry season. It doesn't rain here in May or June. That's about the time of the year. I'm going to call on the Lord to send thunder and rain. And then you will realise what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. I imagine it's a clear blue sky in his saying this. So Samuel calls on the Lord, verse 18, and initially nothing happens. But on that same day, clouds come over the sky and the Lord sent thunder and rain, deafening and drenching. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and they were afraid of Samuel. We're not told how quickly it came, but it certainly doesn't appear to be a long time that they waited. Now they get it. Now, finally, verse 19, the people all said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for us, your servants. They realise that they have done an evil thing, that they have departed from God. They're not even prepared to call God their God. They realise that they have gotten off course and they ask Samuel, please pray to the Lord your God for us, your servants, so that we won't die because we've added to all of our other sins this terrible one of asking for a king. I don't know how Saul is feeling through all of this. He's the recipient of disobedience. Verse 20, Samuel very graciously says to them, don't be afraid. Thunder, God is angry. The thunder certainly demonstrates God's ability to strike whoever he wants and it also demonstrates his attitude towards their sinful choices. God was angry, displeased with them. And Samuel says, don't be afraid. You have done all of this evil. Admit it, acknowledge it, but don't wallow in it. Leave it, forsake it, confess it, move on. Do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. That's the point. When you stumble, get up again, repent and get yourself back under his lordship, his lead, and continue to serve him and to do so on a daily basis. If anybody would come after me, Jesus says, Luke 9 verse 23, let him deny himself and take up his cross once a month and let him come follow me. That's pretty easy to do, isn't it, once a month? 
not so often we have communion, that's when it's a good reminder for us to confess that he is Lord. Or even once a week we come together as Christians, community, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, to bring ourselves back in line under his lordship again. No, in fact, Jesus says, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily. Every morning when you wake up, bend the knees. Jesus, you are my Lord. Today, ups, downs, twists, turns, I live as your servant. You are Lord. I am slave. You're the master. I'm the servant. Don't turn away to other useless things, Israel. Verse 21, they are no good for you. They can't rescue you. Yet we still, like Israel, make those same choices, don't we? We think if I get this, that's going to help me. But we don't take into account, what does God think about this? What does God think about this? Andra and I are trying an experiment to see if we continue to need two cars, if we can in fact have one car. We've been trialling that for a while. What does God think about us having two cars? One car. That's the perspective to have. What does God think? What does God think about my career choice? What does God think about this relationship? What does God think? He's my Lord. Verse 22, great word of encouragement. The Lord will not reject his people. Israel, don't be afraid. God is committed to you. He made a covenant with you. He has bound himself to you. You may depart from him, but he will keep his word and promise to you. You are bound to him. He will not abandon you. A, for the honour of his own great name, and because, two, he started the process. He picked you. And he's committed to making you into his people. Then, here is an encouraging word. Back in chapter 12, in verse 2, Samuel, when he begins to speak, uh, says, Look, here is your king. As for me, as for me, and he goes through that self-examination process. We'll hear that phrase is again, verse 23. The Lord will not abandon you. I'm his servant, so how can I abandon you either? Well, as for me, he makes a fourfold commitment. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. I will intercede for you. This senior prophet priest, now with a king, now demoted, if you will, but still active, still committed, still serving God, still being a servant and working for the welfare of God's people. And he's going to do that through intercession. I will pray for you. Second thing, what Samuel can do in his senior years is I will instruct you in the way that is good and right. Pray for you. Teach you God's word. Verse 24, But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of your heart and consider what great things he has done for you. He's going to counsel them, encourage them, directing them. Serve God faithfully. Think about all of the great things God has done for you. He's going to mentor them a little bit, have input into the next generation's life. And verse 25, he'll also warn them. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. It's pretty clear. If you persist in doing evil, if you stumble, go off track and keep going, there will be consequences. And in this situation, you and your king will be swept away. 
to what God will do in the centuries when Israel does sin, when they refuse to bring themselves back into line with him. So here is this incredible chapter where Samuel challenges the people. Let's renew the kingship and he invites the people to do so. They understand him to be only with Saul, but I think as we see in chapter 12, Samuel means not Saul's kingship, God's kingship. Let's renew that. The challenge is to us as well for us to renew that every day. Renew that kingship, that deliberate orientation of our mind and life and choices to declare our allegiance to him. We can do that in just a moment when we come to our king, the Lord Jesus. Israel would have to wait a long time for the king that God wanted them to have, a king who would be like Samuel, obedient to his word, a king who would be an intercessor, a king who would teach God's people what is right, would give them good counsel and also warn them. That king, of course, is the Lord Jesus who did come. And we, like Israel here, are waiting for that king to come, where he still intercedes for us on high, where he still teaches us through his word and his spirit, where he still encourages us, counsels us and warns us. Live your life under the lordship when you're on the roller coaster with God, don't leave your seats while the movie, while the carriage is in motion. While you draw breath, live under God's rule. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word teaches us not to be afraid, not to be overly anxious that though we have done evil, though we have done sinful things, though we have focused on self, made decisions that please us, decisions that have taken us out of your way, nonetheless, Lord, we come to you confessing, repenting, forsaking those decisions and issues and wanting to live our life with you and under your lead. Help us not to turn away. Help us not to be tripped up. Help us not to make selfish, sinful responses. But Lord, rather help us to serve you as our King with all of our heart as we await the coming of our King, the Lord Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.